We are thrilled to have the incredibly smart and talented Jim DeBello here today to talk about his candidacy and campaign for Congress. Jim is a serial entrepreneur and lifelong San Diegan. He graduated with a BA and an MBA from the highly esteemed Ivy League, you might have heard of before, Harvard University, and was a Rotary Scholar at the University of Singapore, where he honed his knowledge on foreign trade with a focus on China-U.S. relations, or as Donald Trump would say... China. Jim is actually the co-inventor of something that most people use on a regular basis, which is the mobile check deposit. And he served for 15 years as the CEO and chairman of the publicly traded software company, MyTech Systems. Jim is deeply committed to leading a life of service and as a young man helped to implement social welfare policies for the county of San Diego and then joined the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service to help combat hunger. He has worked to create jobs for hundreds of San Diegans and worked to raise over $100 million in growth capital for companies in the 52nd District. Jim is a passionate American who believes that we can't keep doing the same things the same way and expecting different results. We need to be innovative to solve our nation's most pressing issues. The time is now for change. Jim believes, as we all do, that San Diego is one of the best places in America to live, yet we are extremely underserved in Congress by our current representative. We're here to talk to Jim today about his campaign and just learn a little bit more about him. So Jim, welcome. Thank you, Harry. Nice to be here. <laughs> and Randy. Hello. So yeah, we would love to know a little bit more about yourself. Please tell us about yourself. Your background is a businessman, an entrepreneur. I know you're born in California. I saw it. Was it Grossmont Hospital? It is. So like, you've been here. This is your whole life, right? Since I was a little itty bitty boy. Oh my gosh. So you just, yeah, talk about your upbringing, kind of just everything. Let well, us know. <laughs> you know, I'm running for Congress because I really think they have lost touch with the American people. Okay. They're not listening to our voices. So that's my motivation. But I'm a lifelong San Diegan, born at Grossmont Hospital, went to Benita Vista High School. Oh, wow. And my folks moved out to California from New York. My dad was in the FBI. That's so cool. He was assigned to <laughs> Los Angeles as a special agent. And then he was invited to join Rohr Corporation. Fred Rohr helped build the spirit of St. Louis oh. for Lindbergh. Oh, my gosh. That and is so cool. so started a company called Rohr, R-O-H-R. It was okay. a mainstay in Chula Vista. And that's why my dad moved here. First job oh, out of the service. Wow. Yeah. Any cool FBI stories you grew up hearing? Well, Is there any, I any did. Yeah, I mean, can't tell. <laughs> oh, I know. I, so your dad was an official G-man. Yeah, he was an official G-man. Wait, he what is a first G-man? Well, that's government what they used man. to call the FBI. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. very cool. <laughs> yeah, J. Edgar Hoover actually signed an autographed photograph of my father upon his leaving the service. Oh, wow. And we still have J. Edgar Hoover letters of commendation for my dad oh. when he was a special agent. He was assigned to Cowsbell, Montana, his first okay. assignment. And he said, I lived above the post office <laughs> with his new bride. Yeah. And his first assignment or first controversy came when he had to go and, uh, approach a bank robber. And he came out with his gun drawn and he busted right through the door, just like the movies. Again. That oh, was the stupidest gosh. thing I ever did because wow. the guy could have got me. Right? Oh, my gosh. That's But anyway, I'm here to say that he didn't. No. Nothing happened. That's I mean, amazing. I I'm, I'm got bored right out no. here. <laughs> No, I love that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you ended up attending Harvard from there. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible accomplishment. You have an extremely impressive background and accolades. I mean, as a businessman and serial entrepreneur, I know it said you, your website, it talks about how you hold five patents. Did you always have an entrepreneurial spirit? I think so, because I like to think outside the box and do something that nobody else has done before. It's okay. always been something I have aspired to, is get into technology, invent something, get involved with people of like mind. When I was in high school. I remember going to a camp once and all the kids went out to go mess around okay. and it was an astronomy session at camp and I wanted to stay behind and learn something. So um, probably I was a weird kid. <laughs> I don't know, but it was always something where I wanted to go a different path. 
And so I just spoke to a friend of mine from college before coming here, Harriet, uh, who wrote for the USA Today. Oh, awesome. He did a feature story on me before mobile check deposit became national, sort of as a guy with a dream. Yeah. Who was in the attack of the killer tomatoes, who then started a tech company, and that was That's me. So cool. He now writes for Bloomberg, but it was very interesting to sort of recast uh, that moment 30 years ago mm-hmm. and then uh, at school and then the story he wrote. And we talked a lot about helping unintentional people through invention. And mobile check deposit has been terrific for consumers. Oh, I use it all the time. Who would want to wait in line? Oh, who needs it? This guy still. He wants to still wait in line. Right, right. right. Sure. But the thing that has helped is the underbank folks. And there's so many of them in America. Oh, About yeah. 30% of Americans are underbanked or unbanked entirely. And they don't trust banks. They don't trust <laughs> banks. They don't want a relationship. But financial technology through an application allows them to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so mobile check deposit, believe it or not, many people are still paid with checks. Oh, yeah. Allows them to have a banking relationship digitally. No, I love and that. And so it provides access. And I'm very proud of that. No, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. I, how did you come up with that? I mean, was it just you wanted it to be easier for people? Is there anything that kind of sparked that idea? Well, I think the saying goes, desperation is the mother of invention. <laughs> yes. Something like that, right? <laughs> Necessity, whatever really the bad, saying uh, goes. <laughs> time uh, at a bank once. I signed on to a uh, company that was a great what I call diamond in the rough. Wonderful AI technology, the ability to read machine print and hand printed material using scanners. However, big back office scanners were becoming out of fashion, too expensive, and the iPhone was introduced with a camera. And I had worked at Qualcomm and we introduced one of the first smartphones with a camera as an experiment. When Apple came out with the first iPhone, they legitimized it. And we said to ourselves, man, how could we turn that camera into a scanning device? And that was the mission. Then the next question was, well, what good can we apply it towards? (laughs) Like the hammer looking for a nail. In this case, uh, it happened to be checks. We had a proficiency for doing back office automation for banks. We said, can we take that out to the consumer? And that was the genesis of the idea. I worked with the scientific team, and together we invented the workflow, the user interface, and, of course, the core technology. And the rest is history. 80 million people use it today. That's incredible. Wow. See, I would have not probably thought of that. I would have thought of something really, really dumb to do with the camera. We had a lot of dumb ideas, too, (laughs) like reading wine labels. (laughs) What's this good dumb idea? Like if you could just scan a food and know the calories Exactly. In it, you know? no, seriously, <laughs> that was on the table That's also. something that I would probably consider. Yeah. But no, I mean, I use that cam scanner and all these other apps all the time for, yeah. you know, because I mean, who is a scanner or a fax machine anymore? Like, right. I'm a long, <laughs> some uh, people. Except, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But Jim, let me also mention that my understanding is you've been a lifelong scholar athlete and Oh, what sport did you play? Tell us about that. I was a football player, and I also played baseball. I enjoyed athletics, team sports. My dad was a college athlete at Union College. He was the first to go to college. New York, right? Yeah, upstate New York, Schenectady. My mom went to Syracuse. That's a great school. Uh, So my brothers played ball, and I wanted to play ball like my big brothers. So I did, and I had the size. (laughs) Put me on the line. And so we had a successful high school career. I was contacted by an alumnus here in San Diego 
to go to Harvard or to apply. Yeah. And I said, well, I would really enjoy that, but I wanted to go to Stanford to play D1 football. Oh, I get it. No, I really I, I, did. Are you upset that you didn't go to Cornell? <laughs> <laughs> or Yale? <laughs> we beat Yale my senior year. What a Robin, major Robin, accomplishment. Robin, yeah. 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 And Bishop's yeah. Cornell is referred to as hardly an Ivy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, many members of my campaign staff were from Cornell. Oh, so I have highest theme for that. The Cornell basher. We have too many. No, of them, especially on the office. They bash Cornell all the time. Oh, it's because of Andy. It's not personal. Oh, Take it so. Football's great, though. It teaches discipline, uh, how to manage time. Yeah. Any sport does. And so I encourage sports for both women, for men. And it's wonderful with Title IX how women's sports now equal men's sports. Oh, yeah. The only negative, I think, in collegiate sports is too much of it. 100%. Too professional. Year-round. Yeah. Even for kids now coming up through the ranks. Right. And it's a little bit too much emphasis that way. Oh, 100%. No, my husband is a, a passionate sports fan. And mm. he, we talk about this all the time. These colleges profit off of the names, uh, you know, and prestige yes. of certain athletes and their success and their pressure to obviously maintain a certain academic level while they're there to keep their scholarship. But they're also saying, you know, well, you still have to come to X, you know, amount of practices every single day. Yes. And so it's just, it's a lot of pressure. Do you have any suggestions? Do you think about kind of changing that I'm just, well, as a former, you know? It's a good question. Now, first of all, Harvard or any of the Ivies did not offer scholarships. So really? I mean, you're all wow. walk-ons, okay. you pay your own weight. Uh, sorry. Do they still not? <laughs> your own weight. <laughs> Hopefully not your weight. Jim says that they charge by weight. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that's accurate today. We're gonna have to fact check that gonna, one, Jim. We're gonna fact check that and get back to y'all. Actually, being paying by weight would be a lot less expensive. Oh, right. That yeah, might be a good that's one of the new innovative ideas we're, we're gonna put forward. Charging people by weight. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I do. I, I love collegiate sports, but it has gone too professional. They are now allowing individuals whose names are on jerseys, in California at oh. least, to get royalties. Oh. Yeah, that's a royalty. So, you know, the dam is breaking. And yeah. so ultimately you're going to be paying these athletes. And I think then it really takes away from the collegiate sports and the amateur athleticism. Exactly. It's a like. balance. Yeah, no, yeah. 100%. I saw what happened in the Olympics, though. And the Olympics was purely amateur. And then it became amateur and sponsored by companies. So oh, you yeah. Do your All of it's sponsored by power. Right? And now uh, it's professional. <laughs> yeah. Right? And so it lost a little bit of an edge to yeah. me. But I guess you have to say the best athletes are competing. Yeah. But in collegiate sports, I still think we ought to focus on the academics, not mm-hmm. the sport and no, the I big agree. business. When you're, when you're paying a coach $9 million a year, as oh they do at Alabama oh. or Michigan, $5 million. Jim Harbaugh, exactly. I mean, how much is he making? But, Crazy. And you went through this too. Can you speak right. to that at all? You, were, you got to Cornell on a baseball scholarship. You know, I got on a baseball scholarship and at Cornell, like the Ivies back then, what they did was if you needed money, they gave it to you without you having to play. Mm-hmm. So when I... It's not a bad deal. <laughs> uh, the first day I got there, my coach said, you're going to be in class between nine and three or four. You're going to practice from four to seven. And then you're going to be working in the library till 10. And I said, coach, how am I going to compete with everybody else? Mm-hmm. And he said, don't worry about it. And I said, coach, I'm going to, I'm going to study and, and then I'm going to play baseball in the summertime. And and, you know, yeah. do I look back on it? Yeah, but at the same time, I think it was the right decision at the right time. And, and we all have to make mm-hmm. our decisions at one time. Oh, but, yeah. But I'm sorry. Back to Jim. I apologize. That's <laughs> no, 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 good. But, uh, Jim, uh, tell us about your uh, family a little bit. You know, yeah. my understanding is you grew up in a family where your mom actually was, uh, she was a vet and everything else. And so. Oh, so women's. Like a veteran or for animals? <laughs> sorry. Just, animal. Okay. Okay. Just clarify. See, I just got to clarify. <laughs> 
And she liked animals too. You know, she was 92. We took her to the gala on the Midway, the USS Midway. It honors veterans and accomplishments every year. And that year they had uniforms from the waves. That was the branch of service before they actually admitted women into the Navy. She was a wave. She worked in Washington, D.C., she was in a wheelchair. We rolled her up because she oh, wanted wow. to see and touch that uniform. Aww. She put her hand wow. out, and you could see the magic oh, in her wow. eyes. That's so sweet. It was a wonderful moment. Oh, I love so that. So we lost her a couple of years ago, but uh, wonderful sorry. woman. So she and my father met after college, and college, of course, was because of the GI Bill. Yeah. And that was enabled enabled them to get their degrees. They ended up moving to California, had their three boys. My oldest brother was born in Hollywood. He's the one who produces movies now. Oh, wow. Yeah, how about that? My other brother was a professional, we call him fighting clarinetist for the U.S. Air Force. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, he went to the Cal State Northridge, a great music program. And so he played the clarinet for 25 years, retired, and now is teaching elementary school. Oh. And then me uh, came along uh, (laughs) here in San Diego. And so, you know, went through the... High school here at public school and then ended up back at Harvard, uh, which was a big dream come true. Oh, and I can't say it was honestly a dream that I had a long time. I didn't plan it that way. It was uh, serendipity. Oh, oh, I love that. No, that's also And obviously having your mom be a vet veteran. Let's just put it out there and say it yeah. that way to prevent any confusion. But obviously you talk about honoring veterans. It's one of your big pillars of what you're, you know, running on. It's on your campaign website. You've talked about it in interviews before and you talk about honoring veterans, not only with your words, but actually with your actions. Yes. And I commend that. I think it's, it's very honorable to talk about that because it's true. You can say we support you all we want and have a flag in your yard or a bumper sticker, but you have to actually take action. What kind of action do you think is kind of needed? One of the things I think is important is when veterans release themselves from the military service to help them transition into a professional life or a life that they can be fulfilled through Mm -hmm. their work. So training programs are very critical to give them the skills to adapt into commercial requirements. There's a program down in the South Bay that's very important that's new with regard to giving them training for machine shop welding jobs, and the success rate is 96% in placements. Oh, wow. So that's the kind of support I think we need to provide our veterans, number one. Number two is with regard to Veterans Administration, Mm -hmm. hospital care. I think uh, it is such a monstrous organization, and the care has been spotty. Mm-hmm. I think more regional accountability is important. I think regional autonomy in terms of how they run those particular VA hospitals is important. And if you think about it, we live in San Diego with four multi-billion dollar regional healthcare systems. Oh, yeah. Wonderful things that we can learn and also be able to impart on the VA to help the VA provide services to our veterans. I think it's really critical that we take the best from the professional commercial Mm -hmm. world and then merge that with what we are doing in government services. And I think we can do a better job with the VA's system. I I totally agree. Do you have anything? Yeah, what about about military overall? So let's say since we're on military and vets and veterans, what about foreign affairs? What's your stance right now? Where do you see America in the world? Well, there's two things, Randy. I think it's a good question. First of all, I'm glad that we're being stronger with China, and we need to be. And for too long, we've taken a passive role, mm-hmm. hoping 
that with their economic development, they would integrate more fully into the yeah. world economic order and political order. And that has not happened. In fact, what's happened over the last 25 years is a divergence. Mm-hmm. I lived in China for three years. I ran a tech company there. That's My awesome. family was there. We enjoyed it very much. The Chinese people are a lot like Americans. They love their families. They love to laugh. Oh, they're wonderful people. We the, spent quite a bit of time over in China. You know, and I miss it, honestly, from yeah. that regard. But I don't miss the supervision. We had our phones tapped. We had our internet oh tapped. Gosh. And we could hear that on the phones oh, clicking away wow. we had nothing important to say <laughs> but nonetheless I think it's even worse now with the yeah. social scoring and the wow. half a million cameras that are monitoring every activity so you know President That's Xi scary. for life now yeah. has taken China I think in a direction which is not converging but diverging from what we would hope would be a more integrated mm-hmm. and peaceful world I'm very concerned about that the theft of intellectual property. Oh, yeah. The treatment of the Uyghurs, Muslims, uh, yeah. over a million in, in virtual captivity oh, and forced yeah. labor. Yeah. It's like ab- an internment camp. Abuse of human rights. Uh, these are things that we need to stand up to. And I think finally we are, and trade is part of that. Mm-hmm. So I applaud the fact that we're addressing these head on. It's a little messy yeah. when you have a little bit of a trade war. And I can't say it's helped our economy as much, but the Chinese are more, I think, desperate to yeah. have a good solution with mm-hmm. America because they need our commerce. And frankly, with the swine flu that they had an issue with, with the coronavirus that they're having issues with, to be able to open the spigot for soybeans, for for Mm -hmm. pork, and for a better relationship, I think is important. So I would work hard towards increasing or enhancing our relationship with Chinese, but with a firm hand. No, I mean, and speaking, I know you wanted to talk too. I mean, what is your opinion? And there's a lot of opinions right now going around about the coronavirus. And I know my dad, you know, being in the pharmaceutical Mm. kind of world, you have opinions on that and, and all of that. Like, have you, yes. do you believe it's not necessarily from the meat trade kind of deal that's going on? Do you think it's maybe a it controlled is. substance? In my opinion, it's totally because of the meat trade, uh, eating wild animals. This came out of civets, eating civets. There was an article. What is a civet? It's a small animal. Okay. It's a wild animal and okay. it's a, it transmits this virus. Which is how oh. SARS came about. Which how right? SARS. And I lived through SARS. I was in China during SARS. I came home well. because of SARS. Mm-hmm. Wow. And everything was shut down. I mean, when you have a city of 24 million people oh. in Shanghai and no one's on the streets, That's it is creepy. scary and creepy. <laughs> yeah. You want to get the heck out of Dodge. It's like I am legend. You know, they had actually photographs of people getting in the airplane being evacuated. You saw that just recently. Yeah. Yeah. There was a thermometer, basically a heat yeah. sensor yeah. Yeah. to see your temperature, your forehead. They used to do, yeah. Well, they did that with yeah. us. When we left China in 2004, uh, three it was, and I tell you what, you almost felt like you're escaping prison. Oh, I'm sure. And you couldn't wait to touch down in the Western country. (laughs) Now, we put a big SAR sign next to us at the beach in Hawaii (laughs) when we laid over. We had the whole beach to ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I told my dad, I said, I know a couple people that are, uh, you know, capitalizing on the whole wearing a mask and you're on an airplane and you just put it on if you're on a Southwest flight and it's open seating. No one wants to sit next to you. It's a good idea. Yeah. I was the first to wear a mask in our office in China when they withheld oh, information wow. back in SARS days. Well, no, because you weren't messing around. Uh, I, mean, well, you... I knew it from the foreign embassy, from our embassy, yeah. and from some of the uh, expat Chinese who were repatriating mm-hmm. China who heard it from their friends and family in mm-hmm. Canada. People are worried right now. I mean, we live in a, by, obviously by UCSD, and we've spoken about this before, it's a lot of Chinese people from China, not just, you know, American-born Chinese. And there's a ton of people around our complex wearing masks. I don't, you know, it's so it's interesting. It's a little scary, to be It's honest. a little scary, and it's a serious event. And you know the Chinese are still withholding information about it. Oh, yeah, well, they were trying to That's blame the, the U.S. Uh, a little bit for that. At one point, yeah, at, at 
evidently in, in uh, Wuhan. Wuhan uh, it's actually one of the biological centers, too, mm. for China. Mm. And so it's actually registered as a biological weapons site. So there were some rumors going around on the web as to as to whether <laughs> the dark was web leaked, where my dad hangs as out. To whether some, something was leaked or but I mean, who knows? One of the problems, like a chemical weaponry kind yeah, of deal. I say one of the problems when you get a totalitarian country, uh, you know, it, it sort of has a free economic system, but it, uh, but more of a I want to say repressive government, but oppressive. Uh, yeah, but I I think at that point, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you just don't know what to believe. Yeah, I mean that's. And that's one of the problems right now. But Well, I mean, remember we went, too. Yeah. I remember one time we went uh, to China and you were allowed to go on Facebook. You were allowed to access your email on the Internet for a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. like Gmail and all this kind of stuff. And then we went back, what, a year or two later, and that kind of all changed. You needed, yeah. like, a VPN to, to, to access certain yeah. sites online. And it was much more controlled, and yeah. it was just very different. So it's just... Yeah. I feel like we might maybe don't know yet exactly because they obviously seem very scared in China about the coronavirus, like the amount of. Well, they're building two hospitals in 10 days, I think. They're, they've made four more. They're creating four more warehouses to create these masks that people oh, are wearing. So that. that's occurring rapidly. People mm-hmm. are terrified. They've actually just extended Chinese New Year by a week. I was in the e-commerce business for a long time. And so we would drop ship and import products from China very frequently. And so we, we worked around the whole like New Year a lot with regards to shipping times and stuff. And it's usually this big celebration. But it's pretty big that they're making people take off, you know, work and they're not allowing people to ship. They're actually well, afraid. They're extending the vacation by a week now. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. again, the Chinese people are so creative. Yeah. Uh, and there's such a great cultural the richness most, like, there. Love, I felt so embraced, as I'm sure you probably did with your family, too. too. Like, it was yeah. amazing. And so, again, good government is the core of everything. I know. And I want them to be successful mm-hmm. in a way that integrates with the world yeah. and not be on the other side as an Young people want that. That was something we really noticed when we were over there, too. Like, the younger generation, they want to be Western. They love Lady Gaga. They love Western things, you know? They love Friends. Friends is the biggest TV show over there. It's almost like they're 20 years behind television-wise. And it's just really cool to see. But, sorry, I won't take up any more time asking you about China. But Maybe we can finish up on military. Oh, yeah. So, San Diego, as you know, is a big military town and the like. And we talked about veterans. We talked about China. What about the rest of the world right now as far as... What do you see the U.S.'s role? That's a good question, Randy. I live next to a Navy SEAL. I was there when Abraham Lincoln just got back into port this past week. It's so inspiring. The water cannons were going to welcome them home after a a 10-month deployment. And that tells you how important our U.S. Navy is. For example, when in the Strait of Hormuz, when the Mm -hmm. British tanker was apprehended, it wasn't the British Navy he went and saved them. It wasn't the French Navy or the German Navy because they don't exist. Mm -hmm. It was the American Navy. And that ship, the Abraham Lincoln was in the Persian Gulf during the Iran crisis recently. And because of its presence, I think it was a big deterrent. So I think there is a need for physical deterrence and a robust Navy. And they're being asked to do a lot on a very limited budget by comparison of their mission that's global. So I think we need to support that budget, support the build out of the ships and have a strong national defense that way. But defense also goes into the cyber world. And this is the biggest concern to me, is that we're being penetrated now in terms of digital secrecy (laughs) by hacking attacks from Russia, from China, from around the world, Mm -hmm. stealing our intellectual property, stealing our financial data, stealing our military secrets. And so I think it's important that we continue to enhance our protections in digital security, Mm -hmm. ID theft and privacy. And think about next generation Internet. Think about it now. We store a lot of our own personal goods in the cloud. It's all central. I mean, there are cloud server farms that are based in AWS and others. 
But that's all centralized through things like blockchain or other innovations yeah. that we haven't even begun to think about. It's terrifying. We it's will be great. able to, I think, distribute that data mm-hmm. and reduce the case of hacking. So mm-hmm. I look forward to the next generation. This is the time now that Congress yeah. needs to step up mm-hmm. on cybersecurity as a part of sure. our defense Sure. Oh, for sure. No, thank you. Yeah. So I, I kind of wanted to move on to one of the other facets of your kind of campaign that you're, you're running on and everything like yeah. that. So obviously, American culture contains several competing powerful like psychological narratives about how immigration works, or at least how it should work. Ideally, yeah. there's America as this glorious melting pot of cultures, which, you know, that's one side of the equation that people talk about as this benevolent shelter. Give me your, you know, tired, huddled masses and all that sort of stuff. There's also the view of a country threatened by new arrivals, typically kind of non-white aliens with inferior your cultures. Ben Franklin once wrote, you know, Germans were stupid and swarthy. Who's Ben Franklin? I know, right? Who, yeah. Who needs that guy? Though the rhetoric has really evolved, obviously, over centuries, thank goodness. Yeah. Debates over immigration. Speaking as a German-American. I know, right? Oh my goodness. But obviously, debates over immigration in the U.S. have boiled down to this. One side really talks about how immigration benefits everyone, and the other side really talks about how immigration is very detrimental to American workers and taxpayers. I remember when we went to go hear you speak, actually, I was super impressed by your somewhat what I considered non-Republican stance on immigration, not to offend you by saying that, or my father, obviously, but you really acknowledge our nation is built on this melting pot and mix of people, which I love. And you described immigration as America's reboot button, which I thought was incredibly cool. What do you mean by that? And how do you think immigration makes America better? I do think I'm a son of immigrants, right? Immigrant family from Italy. Half from Milan and half from Sicily. So, (laughs) and also from Poland. So, I got a little bit of mixed blood in that regard. It's the lifeblood of our nation. It always has been. It does enrich the fabric of our nation in terms of our culture, our identity, in terms of openness to ideas. I did speak about the reboot button. Mm -hmm. And I always think, you know, on every computer, Less so now than before. There was always that reset button. Yeah. Remember that Control all software <laughs> crash. You always had to reset your computer. Turn it on and turn it off. My dad always me, says. that has been the magic of our exceptionalism in America, mm-hmm. is being able to reset every generation with a new influx of hardworking, dedicated people who love their families and they're making a big sacrifice to come here. And I go back all the way to the people that were leaving Europe Mm-hmm. for religious persecution to come here. I mean, a vast, unknown, untamed land, oh, yeah. no safety net. They had to rely on their own ingenuity mm-hmm. and accountability individually. And I think about that with each wave of immigrants from Europe, from Latin America, from Asia, all with a purpose in mind of stability in their lives for mm-hmm. their families and with a hard work ethic. And that has rebooted America every single generation. So we can't walk away from immigration. We need We need immigration. We need labor. It will be, I think, reflected in our continued economic growth and prosperity. I specifically think that we also need H-1B visas. Yes, you spoke about that a lot. And H-1B visas are for typically a higher trained, educated individual, scientists, physicists, software engineers. We need those in our company. Now, we recruited heavily from U.S. universities, and we tried to recruit as many as Americans as we could, but we also had access to a small cadre of very smart AI scientists who really helped us 
And as a result, our company grew and we were able to hire more Americans. Mm -hmm. So if we say we have to single out a single category and eliminate H-1B visas, that really is bad for our economy. Mm -hmm. In fact, limitations, although sometimes we want limitations because we all save those jobs for Americans, is actually counterproductive. Yes, I love the fact that you're saying that. Because also, too, I feel like, and not to diss Americans in any sense of the matter, but I feel like you meet so many immigrants that have had to work so much harder to get to where they are in a sense that they have phenomenal work ethics. I mean, I swear it's incredible. And I remember you talking about the visas and all that kind of stuff and common sense immigration form really seems to be this middle ground possibility, at least from what I can tell between this Republican ideology in a sense, not all Republicans, obviously, and not all Democrats want open borders as it's kind of portrayed, but what kind of common sense immigration reform are you kind of looking for? Yeah. So every garden has a fence Mm -hmm. and I think every strong country has strong borders. Mm -hmm. And we've known from Clinton to Obama, from Bush to our current president, Trump, it's all about protecting our borders Mm -hmm. and the integrity of those borders. There is a legal immigration process. I had an employee from Iran spent eight years going through the process of it's getting crazy. his naturalization papers a becoming a years. U.S. Mm-hmm. Takes forever, but he stuck through it, and it mm-hmm. was very meaningful for him to go through the uh, naturalization ceremony mm-hmm. and become an American citizen. And I recall when we sat down for lunch at the company, how upset he was, how many people were sneaking through and being allowed to stay and not having to go through the process mm-hmm. that he invested in time, energy, and his heart. Yeah, And so I, I do believe there's benefit of actually following the rules mm-hmm. and doing it the right way. And do you think it needs to be easier, though, a little bit or more straightforward? Well, I honestly think it's been abused in the past. Okay. Uh, and I think, honestly, the, the kind of migration patterns that we've seen recently are overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And when we can't even take care of the homeless people on our own streets who are citizens and we offer free health care for folks who are not citizens, I think is upside down. I think we need to take care of our citizens. I think we need to protect the borders. We should keep the borders available so good qualified people could come over, but it can't be unfiltered. So would you say you subscribe to the whole thinking pattern of like, rather than building walls, building bridges, legal bridges? <laughs> you know, it's an interesting point, Harriet. I mean, I do think, uh, and the Border Patrol said this, having barriers is effective uh, to enhance their performance on the border to protect really? our you laws. Think, why do you think that is? Because I mean, maybe this is just my lack of understanding from the border, yeah. but can you not dig tunnels? Can you not? Oh, yes. Are, I mean, is it really going to make that much of a difference to have a physical structure of some kind? Yeah, I really think it does. Okay. It's a barrier. It is not the single answer. Okay. And there are some parts on our 2,400-mile uh, border that you can't build a wall. Yeah. Right? I mean, the Rio Grande the, yeah, has some exactly. amazing yeah. edifice cliffs that you just can't seem to. I mean, the people climb. You yeah. really want to come to America so if you're going through that. So use technology. use other means to provide some mm-hmm. level of protection. But it can't be an open border. No, I think that sure. is not right. We have phenomenal services in America. They are costly. Mm-hmm. We have to be thinking about our citizens. We have to encourage a proper immigration, but not open borders. I'm not for open borders. And I do think the wall is effective in certain areas. Mm-hmm. I do think other means are as effective as well. Sure. You've, uh, you've talked a little bit about homelessness. And uh, yeah. although I see you did a great video on your site. It was so video. good, by the way. We will be sharing that on our Facebook great, page and on our site. It was really and, uh, good. And obviously having a, hopefully having a brother maybe in that industry has given you a video. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. You know, 
as our listeners know, you're running for Congress, which is a federal position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what a lot of people don't understand, though, is the difference sometimes between jurisdiction, what the federal government can do versus what the states can do. But an important issue here is actually homelessness. And so right now, a lot of the homeless policy has been at the state level. But if you go San Diego, San Francisco, LA, you just well, you just see what's happening in this state. Oh, so, yeah. so what role do you think a congressman and what role do you think the federal government can play in the homeless issue? It's a great question, Randy. I've attended the USD symposiums they conduct every quarter oh, wow. that brings together county, city, and business leaders to talk about this issue. And it was really started by two businessmen, one of whom owns the Padres, oh, the, Peter Seidler, yeah. Yeah, and another fellow, uh, Dan Shea, who is a restauranteur, okay. who said, hey, this homeless thing is out of control. Oh, yeah. You know, let's at least have bridge shelters and let's have people talking with each other because so many different agencies are involved. There's no coordination. Mm-hmm. So I did hear Kristen Gaspar speak. She yeah, listen, yeah listen. you saw her last she night. She was actually last night at one of the precinct events. And so she I spoke on the issue, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, she's quite interesting. And I think she's right. She has a, a, a very strong spine with regard to, listen, we're spending $200 million in the county on this for oh. arguably 10,000 people. Some would say even higher, but who knows? Around that range. Yeah. Joe Leventhal right. calculated how much it was per person. Per person he said, yeah. we could put them up at a Ritz Carlton for what we're paying per person, you know? It's a lot of money, and that's not counting city money or state money. Yeah. And our governor said, let's put another billion into it. Oh, I just Gavin. don't think it's right to keep throwing money at a problem without trying to find the mm-hmm. root solution. And I think, honestly, politicians who have been career politicians and haven't had a job don't appreciate different types of approaches as opposed to just taking taxes mm-hmm. and applying them haphazardly. And so we have a patchwork of solutions that aren't working. This is a mental health problem probably 50% of it. And then the economic dislocation would be maybe the other half of it. So I think we need to enhance our mental health infrastructure. And that's where the federal government can come into play to provide a proper incentives for our private public partnerships mm-hmm. to provide mental health beds and associated mental health care. So I guess what you're saying is... What's well, a mental health and a drug well, issue, right? As well, well like, do those go together for you? I would say the drug issue well, is a big It's just part not a housing it. issue. Right? It's not oh, a housing no, it's not issue. Oh, no, lack of housing. Yeah. I mean... Well, that's the second part of the problem, though. We host Scott Sherman speak, our local yeah. mayoral candidate, and says 47, 48% of housing costs are related yeah. to regulations mm-hmm. and labor costs. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a way we can provide incentives through our system of capitalism uh, to developers to give them an opportunity for profit, mm-hmm. to allow them to build at a lower cost, I think we can solve the housing That would problem. be incredible. Not, right? not saying I necessarily want it. I just know that what we're paying, what most people pay for apartments and things it's like insane. that. It's insane. The housing cost is a, is a big issue. Now, you ask about what can the federal government do? And again, 25% of the nation's homeless are in California. Oh, yeah. 125,000, 150,000, somewhere in that range. Rampant in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I know a young man who actually just got a job up in San Francisco moving there this next week, was looking for an apartment this week, and he was going to a neighborhood. He saw two women being chased by a fellow. Yeah. A vagrant, a homeless yeah. guy who was clearly out of his mind oh and scared the you know, heck out of him. And so oh, I had yeah. an anxiety attack on Market Street. I ended up coming home. I just yeah. I didn't want to be around that area. It's it stressed me out. You were just citizens. there. It's There's not some weird fair stuff. to our taxpayers, and it's got to be addressed. Yeah. So I just don't think you can throw money at it. I think we need to mandate these individuals who need substance abuse help, who need mental health help. 
and mandate that they get that help as opposed to allowing them to live carelessly Mm -hmm. on the sidewalks. And I think that's irresponsible as a society Mm -hmm. and lacks humanity. It's not compassionate. No. Helping them is compassionate. As Carl DeMille, a candidate, as you know, Republican candidate for the 53rd, has come out and actually said, we need a federal policy on homelessness. Mm -hmm. Is that something which you back? I think so. I really do. Because I think somehow we need to be able to address the issues of being able to take care of people's substance abuse Mm -hmm. and mental health issues. Secondly, I think the locality, I think, and the state need to address the housing issue. Yeah. I don't think the federal government can get inside of local housing issues. No, it's so different. If you have any advice for Governor Newsom here, on this issue, what would you advise? Well, certainly don't go around and say, hey, I am your governor, you pay for my salary, when they really oh, don't. Gavin. Gavin, I think, needs to step up and try to address the root causes as opposed sure. to throwing more money from the taxpayers on top of it. We are in a very blessed situation in California of having surpluses. Surpluses are because we have a 13% top oh margin tax rate. Oh, uh, the the technology is booming. Yeah, it's highest in the nation. It's not fair. And we're losing citizens who are moving to Florida, moving to Nevada, yeah. moving to Texas. Yeah. Right. yeah. Net oh, loss of population. To Iowa, for example, that was a big one. There was a bunch of people from Iowa saying, stop coming here. We don't want you California people. Exactly. You're hippie. Nonsense. Keep it in California. So yeah, it's Persona non grata right. everywhere, right? Because, oh, yeah. They don't want us. So, what about housing then, too? I, I, what about housing? I know housing is one of your pillars. I don't think it's probably one of your pillars. But Affordable but, housing? Yeah. Or? I was just reading today in the San Diego Trib about the average price of a home in San Diego County now is $640,000. Right, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, I, think about I don't know what you guys how it's going to be looking <laughs> at, but, you know, it's like, what do you do? I, I mean, you know. You buy uh, your daughter a house. Oh, no, is that that was a loaded question. That was a softball. But no, I mean, honestly, I obviously went to Bishops. I know your daughter and my sister went to Francis Parker together, but everyone that I know who's around my age, 26, 27, all of them that are homeowners, you know, their parents either gave them the down payment right. or gave them a house. And I mean, it's just not feasible. I know you and mom were obviously, you owned like a little condo kind of deal or I guess it was a house technically in San Diego, but you paid what? Like, 250000 for the place in Lancashire. I mean, it was cra- it's crazy. Oh, yeah, but it was a lot. You yeah. can't own a home here. You can't get an outhouse in Pacific Beach for like $200,000. Yeah. You know, know? I would say that the American dream lives, but the anxiety that younger people are facing today coming out of college is overwhelming because Student how can I take care of myself? Oh. How can I find a job that pays me enough to yeah. pay yeah. that down payment to live at home in my home state, and they yeah. cannot. In a yeah. safe area in your home state. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, we pass regulations that require solar panels that add $9,000 per unit per door mm-hmm. of construction. We've added sure. other regulations that limit it. We've had a situation where California developed in the 50s and 60s was booming, and then people said, this is good. We want to limit who else can come in and we're going to put up barriers to that. So we've added more regulation on top of regulation. Mm -hmm. It's the root cause. Now the regulations in and of themselves may be noble. Everyone wants solar power. Yeah. But at what cost and at what unintended consequence? Mm -hmm. And the unintended consequence is that we've sent housing through the roof. It's unaffordable. So we have to deregulate and allow individuals to try to address this through construction, homeowners, 
through innovation with regard to even the size and footprint of our living and dwellings, right? If you no, think about sure. that, Japanese have smaller dwellings. Maybe that's part of it. Now, I don't want to take a step backwards, but as a start yeah. home, it still can be very effective. Having yes. a smaller footprint, less regulations, bring that cost down from $600,000 a unit so, Harry, to maybe half of it. You're getting a studio in a park <laughs> in a crappy part of town, okay? That's just how it's going to be. Well, I thought maybe a shipping container. That <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> just, just, just punch some holes in the wall for some light and you're Good. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. No, but I mean, getting into that about, you know, solar panels and all of that, I was very pleased to know that you actually believe in climate change and you believe it's an issue. Yeah. Have you faced any sort of pushback from other Republicans trying to tell you not to talk about that? I, you know, I have been able to meet a variety of people in the course of the campaign. And I think what we see now is the temperature literally is changing. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's it's getting warmer. Love it. We We can't put our heads in the sand as Republicans with regard to fact and reality. Mm-hmm. And yes, humans are contributing to that temperature change. Now, a lot of that can be due to other atmospheric mm-hmm. conditions as well. And so humans aren't exclusively at fault. And we need to find ways for 100% renewable sources of energy that are plentiful and cheap. And by God, we've done this before mm-hmm. as being creative citizens at a tech center here in California in our district and throughout the United States of solving these problems. So to me, it's not a draconian problem. It's Mm -hmm. not the number one issue. Mm -hmm. More people die from malaria, a million a year, from tuberculosis, 1.5 million a year worldwide, than of course are being forced out. So it's not this end of days, doomsday, Doomsday. woman at the Alessandra Casio-Ortez. But my dad keeps talking about that. She was mentally unstable and they they asked her to leave, but he keeps going back to Not her, the woman who was speaking at her town hall meeting that said, we have 12 years left, we're all gonna die. I think Al Gore said we had 10 years left and that was 13 years ago. That's right. Uh, so That's honestly, right. let's stop this rhetoric. Yeah. It's so frightening it's and nice. scaring people. It's yeah, really yeah, scaring yeah. the young people particularly. Yeah. It is an issue we need to address quickly and with investment. Uh, Bill Gates Love has him. talked a lot about investing in our root energy production opportunities and things that we may not have even invented yet. Yeah, I saw you talked about that as well I before. I just that's believe amazing. in that because I've seen that. Well, and, you've done that. Look yeah, what you've created. Done that as well. So I really like that. And so I do think that uh, there are alternative forms of energy that we can pursue and we should. So plentiful energy, plentiful protein, right? And plentiful water. Again, we live on the coast. Mm-hmm. We've had drought conditions in the past. We're no longer oh, living yeah. in drought conditions, but our water bills are going way up. Oh, yeah. Well, talk to us <laughs> about the uh, Tijuana sewage. Yeah. Well, speaking of water, that's, I mean, a, that's the brown That water. affects people. You live over in Coronado, right? right? I think in Coronado, and those great. beaches are closed down there. The statistic is 500 days out of the last three years. Wow. And how much Imperial do we all pay Beach, to live here, you know, and have access Coronado, to those beaches? Coronado, up to Point Loma, even affecting La Jolla. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of sewage guys and so it's pretty ugly and when it rains hard there's no infrastructure in Tijuana. No. Tijuana's grown remarkably fast and there's no sewage system that is adequate to protect people. It comes into America through the Tijuana. Well it's been a problem for 50 years and sort of people have kicked the bucket down for years and there's been attempts there is a primary sewage treatment plant. It's too small. The secondary treatment isn't adequate, and sewage flows. It's okay. particularly acute because our Navy SEALs are now training. We spent nearly a billion dollars to produce a, a new facility down there in that Imperial Beach, okay. Silver Strand area. So we have military training. 
We have, obviously, ecological disaster. Mm -hmm. We have issues with tourism, beaches closed, and we have issues for our own citizens who can't use the beaches who, as you said, Mm -hmm. pay sun dollars to live Yeah, the sunshine tax. So, you know what? I mean, all politics is local. This is where an EPA lawyer ought to be focused. And that would yeah. be my opponent who's been in office eight years and hasn't done anything. Yeah. You would think the first thing to do is stand on a soapbox and great energy to mm-hmm. solve this problem. Oh, it's a safety issue. It almost issue. does seem like that opponent, I mean, I just don't know what he does, to be honest with you. I, uh, as you said. We talk, yeah. I mean, you know, I get an email from him every now and then talking about some some policy that the, that the Democratic Party has talked about for a while. But it doesn't seem like he's, he has any action. I mean, I yeah. mean, he's in the majority party right now. And you would think somebody who would be doing that and somebody who would be running for a re-election would be out there fighting for the constituents in his district. Well, let's be clear. His name is Scott Peters. Yeah, we, he's, he's not Baltimore. We can say his name, yeah, Dad. He's not Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> it has been rumored that he, he is not Baltimore. Be named. <laughs> <laughs> but again, he, uh, I'm sure he's a very nice man, uh, but he is not effective in terms of leadership. He votes 95% of the time with Pelosi AOC. So he's true liberal. He's a true liberal. Although he has a moderate persona, he votes liberally. He's had zero bills passed that he's personally sponsored in eight years. He hasn't risen to the occasion to address the Tijuana sewage problem. He took credit for the USMCA because they had $300 million allocated for somewhere on the Rio Grande through the border. But, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. And that wasn't because of his efforts. So, again, he's kept his head low. He's been a professional politician. politician. He's gotten reelected because of that. Mm -hmm. I think it's time for people to take a stand. And again, going back to Tip O'Neill, a great Democrat, all politics is local. Focus. And I will focus on that problem. I will focus on the homelessness. If you ask me to do more in two years, that's going to be a hard order to fill. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, I think politicians, particularly career politicians, their career relies, they rely on getting reelected. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember so, when he was in the city council. Oh, yeah. I can remember that, that, oh, yeah, that, I remember that. that whole, you know, everything that went wrong there. And, you know. Well, pensions. I mean, oh. pensions and, and you know, you just can't turn your eye away from these issues. I mean, you got to get yep. the issues. And a businessman, to me, seems like the right type of person to do so. Because you can't blame anybody else. I mean, you're the last one responsible. You're the one working, you know, for any the lights go out. course of my career, I pitched a lot of different venture capital providers to yeah. fund my companies, one of which was Sequoia Capital. And a man they called the godfather of VC, That's a named Don Valentine. I never forget that. I was 35 at the time. And I was told he's the godfather of venture capital. <laughs> Very know, ominous. Yeah, wow, okay, you know. Yahoo and Google, I think, and a bunch of other big investments in there. I was pitching and he goes, Jim, you should remember there are five reasons for success. Here's the godfather speaking. I said, what are they? (laughs) And he said, focus, 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 focus. And I forgot the fifth one. (laughs) Focus. And as a politician who's constantly running for his next job, you're not focused. Mm-hmm. You get torn in 35 different directions or maybe 350, but the Tijuana sewage continues to flow. Homelessness continues to grow without direct attention. And again, if you look at AOC, I don't like her politics, but she's been very effective on creating an agenda mm-hmm. as a fresh woman 
congressperson. Well, she's also very, I mean, I think honestly, this is too, just her being a little younger. She's extremely active on rallying people on social media. She, she does a great job at that. And I feel like honestly, and I've talked to my dad about this all the time. And I, I this, I'm, you know, obviously in marketing and stuff, the Republicans just need to step it up with their presence on social media and just be doing That's more. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's just, you know, a lack of, a lot of like my dad, for example, I know that your company spends a lot of money on mailers and mm-hmm. other like, forms of advertising like commercials and stuff like that whereas but that's because you're pitching to an older group so the younger people that you're trying to reach and have them come and try to attract because you want younger people in the Republican Party and that's what you you talk about so you need to reach them and meet them where they're at which is on social media So we are actually kicking off our digital yeah. marketing yeah. and social media this week. Yay, so you'll be glad okay. to hear I'm that. I'm so happy to uh, hear that. No mailers. Thank and by God. the way, that's the last compliment I'll ever give AOC. <laughs> right. I do admire that aspect of what she's yeah. doing. So my point is the next congressman for the 52nd district, Jim DeBello, will be out there as a champion for this district. This district represents over half of our economy. That's what you said, our GDP. It's huge. If yeah. you think about it, it's the Pacific home fleet, the principal home port mm-hmm. for the Pacific fleet. Biotech, telecom, Mm -hmm. you name it. I mean, these are big industries rooted in the 52nd. We need to champion that. This is an epicenter globally for great innovation. Yeah. And so Congressman Jim DeBella, that has a nice ring to it. has a great name to it. A great ring to it. But, but, you know, what would the first three months look like if you were going to, as you said, focus what do you think you're going to focus? You know, what would be your main one or two things you focus? I would spend on? the first three months here in San Diego. Yeah. First of all, you got to go get your seat. Yeah. Uh, you got to find out where your office is. Probably <laughs> a broom closet somewhere. Right. Unless uh, well, you're in the majority. If you're in the majority, then yeah, like really. when you're in the majority, right. that's right. It's going to be a, a better office. <laughs> well, think about that. A dark horse winning in this district. What a signal that it sends good. nationally. This oh, is yeah. national news. Mm-hmm. Number two is what an amazing boost of adrenaline for the California Republican oh, yeah. Party. Yeah, that it is winnable. We can take back yeah. this state. And so there's a bigger cause here at work in the 52nd yeah. district. Yeah. But my first three months, Randy, would be absolutely to get back and focus on the Tijuana sewage issue. Be number one issue, I think. Be uh, Because you visible. do something about it. I know something about yeah. it. I live with the people that live with that problem. Yeah. The second thing, it clearly, is the homeless issue. Let's address the yeah. mental health infrastructure that doesn't exist. I do have a bone to pick, however, with our drug-related culture. And this is, I think, very interesting. You think about the cartels in Mexico, mm-hmm. the kind of crime that's happening, the oh, yeah. death rate, the murder rate, yeah. unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Especially Tijuana. Oh. Tijuana, I won't even go down there yeah. anymore. Yeah. Although, again, yeah. the Mexican culture generally is a wonderful Oh, culture. wonderful. Yeah. But where's the government to help? And maybe they can't because these cartels are out of control. I just, yeah, I just saw a picture today, Jim. I don't know if you saw this. It was where a certain city in Mexico right now is training its youth to actually yes. fight back against the cartels. And the kids were, were actually training with rifles. 13-year-olds. <gasps> yeah. What is this, child back. soldier <laughs> stuff out of Africa? Well, things things in a lot of parts of Mexico have oh. gotten really bad. But I'm sorry, you were saying. Well, I just want to add yeah. one thing. There was a 13-year-old child who fought in the Revolutionary War for the Americans against the British. Wow. I don't know the name. Oh. Actually, I just saw the program of Gates. Remember the oh, yeah, uh, program yeah, of your yeah, heritage? Yeah, and yeah. it was with Sigourney Weaver. Oh, wow. And cool. one of her forefathers was a 13-year-old soldier. Oh, Isn't that amazing? Anyhow, back to Mexico. Okay, why is this happening? Well, because there's a huge drug trade. We just saw, I just saw the U.S. Coast Guard's admiral speak. I was at the San Diego Military Advisory Council meeting. 
And he showed a map of drug trafficking from Latin America, basically into Mexico, most of the traffic into Mexico, then across the border. All right, cocaine, huge deal. We was very proud. 240 tons of cocaine confiscated. However, that's 10% of what gets through. And so we hear of cavalier use of drugs in America, which really is adding to demand which is fostering more of this cartel action in America. So you're not just talking about marijuana, you're talking about- No, I'm talking about heavy drugs. Heavy drugs, okay, wow. Really disruptive, and it's disrupting the Mexican economy, it's disrupting our economy, it's resulting in great violence and great death. Now, if you want to talk about marijuana, I'm not a big proponent of legalization, okay? I really am not. Oh, my father's not either. He can talk to, we've fought about this many a time. Yeah, it's (laughs) interesting, you know, the argument's been, hey, we're gonna make more taxes, and taxes are important for us, and come on, guys. To me, it's a gateway drug, and it's used to get high, and I think that is a something that it goes against what we're trying to do is prevent people from abusing their bodies. Now, it's up to them if they want to abuse their bodies. But then again, it's much better than the opioid crisis. If you're like, personally, just for me, I mean, this is something we talk about a lot. I personally think natural medicinal things like marijuana are a much better alternative than getting somebody potentially hooked on a drug. I think that's an interesting point. I would say this, if I'm not mistaken, it's THC and CBD. Is that correct? Yes, CBD is is the the non-psychoactive. Correct. So CBD has not been studied by the FDA and should be. But do you studied. trust the FDA? Because I don't know why I necessarily yeah, I feel do. like they know about our. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, That's I, just I, yeah. On any place in, in any agency in the U.S. government in the world. I would trust the FDA. Mm-hmm. I just would. All right, we can disagree on that. Well, I can go to CDC if you want to, but nonetheless, we haven't studied it. So we really don't know the efficacy of CBD. THC, THX, THC is yeah. a narcotic. Yes. And so I really it is think, psychoactive, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I look at the billboards on Rosecrans Avenue. It's all dispensaries. marijuana dispensaries, yeah. right? If it's medical, mm-hmm. put it in the pharmacy. I'm totally in favor of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, for example, and this is what I talked to. My sister obviously has epilepsy and yeah. uh, I forget what it's called, Drewer's syndrome or something. There's a type of epilepsy that is treatment resistant to drugs. And they found CBD can actually cure it in children if it's Fabulous. daily. So, and that's what we talk about too, because you're obviously in the, the biotech industry. And so that, I mean, relieving nausea for those who have cancer and stuff like that. You know, I think that that's such a great option. Totally in favor okay. of that. Not suggesting it should be over the counter. If it truly is medical efficacy, yeah. let's do it properly. Let's do it through how we do other drugs. Yeah. Opioid, opioids, opioids. Yeah. <laughs> However, whatever you want to call it. It's an entirely different issue oh, and one yeah. that's disastrous. It's, oh. But back to marijuana yeah. again, as a hallucinogenic or mm-hmm. whatever, a psycho... Yeah, it's it's psychoactive, meaning it you know can alter your perception of things like that. Yeah, but I, I just think it's more dangerous. And again, having a tax benefit to me isn't justified. No, for, I, I totally get that. I mean, obviously, yeah. we we talk about the benefit of that based off of the initial trial of that with Denver and Colorado and all of those places. Yeah, and they saw what do they call it? Drug tourism, I guess you could call it necessarily weed tourism increase, and they were able to fix things like roads and potholes and stuff. And obviously, we know that we need that in the country. But I feel like we, like you said, could probably get that money from a lot of other things where we're just not spending correctly. Yeah, I don't know the statistics there either in Colorado. I've heard yeah. that they've also had an, you know. A, you said a, a rise of crime. A so rise yeah, of my crime. dad, we talked about yeah. this. Yeah, so I think you have to do the cost benefit in it. Well, one thing I can say though is that marijuana does not make you violent. If anything, it makes you lazy and hungry. <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> put that out there from what I, I went to music school. So I, I've seen it all in Boston. I yeah. also was in Boston. I took a couple classes over at Harvard too. So I would take the little, the green line and the red oh, line to go over there. Yeah. The red line got scary at night. Oh my gosh. But yeah, we, we've talked about this before with marijuana, but you have seen, and this is something I don't agree with. You either need to be for, you know, talking about how it's a gateway drug and how it, it's bad for people in 
America. But then you see this side of things with the, a lot of Republicans that you've met who actually are like, oh, we can profit off of this. Well, but so, there's a libertarian side of Republicanism, too. And, and the libertarians, uh, I mean, really, you know, you know, we should always have liberty in mind. Yeah. And, and there's a group of Republicans, though, who believe, hey, look, you know, the government should not intervene in people's lives Except that's for, more libertarian. Except like. for 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 really crucial issues. Yeah. That. And so there's there's a group of Republicans out there who believe that hey, look, if it's not hurting anybody, you should be able to do it. But you know, I just feel like you can't have your foot in both worlds. You either believe morally it's wrong and not good well, for people, or you want to profit off of it. I see. One of my views. Yeah. Here, oh, I know you're very anti. You don't no, even. No, 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 no. One of my views, though, I think on this one is that. If I wouldn't give it to my child, why would I want somebody else to, mm-hmm. to have their child use it too? So yeah. that's how I try, I try to look at it. But Jim? My mother-in-law is a big pot smoker. She won't mind me saying that on air. She's very proud of it. So I just, uh, I came when I first met my husband, who's a liberal. I was a big Republican when I met him. I did not like Obama. Didn't know why. I just grew up hearing that a lot from my father. She was educated correctly. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I thought if I smoked weed, I was immediately like the next day going to be smoking meth because it was a gateway drug. And I grew up very afraid of all this. And I met my mother Sometimes mother-in-law. you got to scare your kids. Oh, but at the same time, though, once you realize that your parents are blowing things out of proportion and it's not necessarily accurate, you question, well, what else have they lied to me about? And so it can actually lead you to want to try more things like that. And so, exactly, see? So it's just interesting to hear people's perspectives. And the older generation, you do have this group of people from like the 70s. We are now in the older generation. I know, right? Isn't that crazy? But no, it's just interesting. Like, I don't know, she has severe stomach issues and stuff. So it really helps her and and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, I think my personal opinion, and I know we're interviewing you here, but I just feel like if it doesn't, hurt anybody you know we still allow people to drink and then so many people continue to drive after they drink like we should just also not allow people to drink anymore if we're really worried about public safety which i know my dad's all for he's for another prohibition it's it's interesting conversation here i mean you know i think drinking is really sort of a cuisine it's a it's the ability to uh, enjoy a drink without having to uh, alter it in terms of your state of mind and presence see i can't people do abuse it (laughs) and that's not good and so that cannot be condoned but it's not with the intent of getting drunk yeah, uh, not I think funny. when you smoke weed, you intend to get high. Yeah. <laughs> no one smokes it and thinks, oh, I accidentally yeah. got high again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but again, I, I, I put it in the bigger box in terms of gateway or not a gateway. Mm-hmm. It's still an acceptance of a drug culture. Yeah. And I look at what's happening south of the border, going back to that issue. Oh, yeah. And I'm not, sure, I'm not saying there's a direct <laughs> link between marijuana and what's happening south of the border. But... The demand for drugs yeah. is immense in America, right? And we're, yeah. we're, we're now condoning the use of a drug mm-hmm. that is untested by any agency, yeah. whether yeah. you trust it or not. Yeah. And it's it's contributing, I think, to a attitude of acceptance, which is, has long downstream consequences mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like that, homelessness now, too, because we accept things we didn't accept before. And for me, it's always about, you know, it's about personal responsibility. And as you get older, and I'm not saying, Harriet, this is something we, we focus on, but, but, you know, but it's this concept of personal responsibility. And it's almost like, as you're saying, Jim, it's almost like we have a culture now that accepts but doesn't, you know, people want rights without responsibilities. And, you know, oh, we talked about this with gun ownership. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, to me, I think it's just, I mean, a right comes with a responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, and, oh, of uh, course. one of our problems right now is, you know, everybody wants to be loved. Yeah. Wait, wait. Nobody wants to be the parent. <laughs> oh, okay, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> you know, 
I, uh, I was just speaking about this. Clay Christensen was yeah, a professor yeah. at the Harvard Business School. He was one of my away, right? No, I heard, yeah. He did. He just recently passed away at 67. A young man oh. by my Yeah, standard. no, of course. You know, but uh, six foot eight. Oh, my God. Road scholar. Is that healthy? Like your dad. No. <laughs> uh, remarkable man. Great strategist. Great teacher. Great human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of his biggest contributions was not his disruptive innovation books, it was how you measure your life. And he wrote about this and he lectured about this. And he said, you know, it's interesting. I went to HBS, he mm-hmm. said, and I was a uh, Baker scholar. And I would see my classmates, some of whom went to jail, some of whom had failed marriages or estranged kids because they focused on the business things that we were taught mm-hmm. every three months, return on investment, mm-hmm. profit, growth. And we always said with our families, well, you know, you can't see that changing. So you sort of park that, say, I'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. I'll get to that later. I want to worry about my promotion, my yeah. pay raise. The priorities are upside down. He said, it really was important for me to think back at what was driving my motivations. And he said, my family and ultimately how I helped other people succeed is how he measured his life. I thought that was beautiful oh, and very, that's, very powerful. That's, that's exactly. And he said one thing too, Randy, if I may yeah, say yeah, it's sure. really interesting because he said, you know, when I was a road scholar and I played basketball, six foot eight, yeah. and I was a center <laughs> and a team that was the equivalent of the NCAA in England. Didn't think they yeah. didn't have that, but right? they, wow. they did. Championship game on Sunday. He's a Mormon. Oh. He said, I always made a promise to God yeah. that I won't play a sport on Sundays. Yeah. And I kept to that. Yeah. And I had pressure from my teammates mm-hmm. and my coach to break that. And he said, I thought about it a lot. But had I broken that vow once mm-hmm. and said, well, just this one yeah. time, going back to your point, Randy, just this one time, yeah. then you really start to make exceptions mm-hmm. all the time yeah. and don't live by principle. And it's easy in our society because we're affluent, right? Things are pretty good in America. Yeah. Despite everything we hear and read, you know, yeah. it's an exceptional people country. People want to come here. And so I think to myself, I go, you know, we lack that kind of fortitude as a nation because we are not challenged as we once were because Mm -hmm. we are more affluent. And so I I just honestly think, you know, you have to introspectively look about your individual responsibility, your personal accountability. And I think it's important values to live by. It's as a leader, too. As a leader. I mean, one of the things being on sports teams and being in politics, you just understand leadership, you know, the importance of leadership. And, you know. Leadership is also something you do you do when people are watching and when people are not watching. Yeah, good point. That's what a leader does. But, you know, Jim, the demographics of the district uh, of the 52nd are some people could be saying they're moving towards Democratic. Some people could be saying it's more of a purple demographic. And some people could be saying it's more. What do you mean by purple? Well, that's. Red and blue. Oh, so, <laughs> sorry. So, you do have to kindergarten learn my yeah, color charts. Yeah. Well, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and In music school, not art. Yeah, yeah right. okay, okay. And some people could say that it's moving to more the decline of state. What's your message then to Democrats and to the independents for decline of state? Why you? Why a Republican? Why you? You took the question out of my mouth. Go ahead. <laughs> it was a, a, a very strong question. And I think we need to get back to common sense solutions on focused local problems. Stop worrying about the election. Stop worrying about partisanship. Start doing things for people and listening. And I honestly believe people are becoming 
disengaged mm-hmm. because they fear the government isn't listening to them anymore. No matter what you feel, you vote for a proposition oh, yeah. and that money is reallocated without your say, without your vote to something completely different. Mm-hmm. We saw that with Sandag recently. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're going to build a high rail. You <laughs> yeah. know, and, well, hang on now. We voted for that money for the, Fix the roads. Right? So that's not right. Mm-hmm. And I think irrespective if you're a Democrat or Republican, you need to uh, step up and be heard and have a strong stance on focused solutions that are common sense driven. So again, I've been in business where I've invented things and thought outside the box. And I think that's a, an attribute. I've been unfocused mm-hmm. in the past with new product ideas, Randy, and learned through experience you can't do them all. You know, you want to come back at the end of your term and say, I actually accomplished something. Yeah. As opposed to photo ops or press conferences. And we're tired of photo ops and press conferences as Americans. And that's not who I am. Yeah. I I can say one last thing on this one then. So the concept of service. You've had an illustrious career. You put your time in. You built the company up. You've had your family. Your 10,000 hours, you know? Let's let's talk about service. Yeah. So what's your view on service? And that's can be, it can be, you know, it can be God, it can be country, it can be family or state or city. Yeah. What's your view on service? But it's all of the above with regard to service. I've always said my most important a goal is to lead my life with truth and fidelity with my wife and my family. Unlike uh, a lot of politicians, it's great that that's one of your principles. You know, <laughs> that's number one. Number two is to be a part of the community. I said I wouldn't run unless I saw something that I really made it distasteful. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is the rhetoric of single-payer health care, more government control, more costs as our deficit mm-hmm. rises, uh, more policies that stay away from our core founding principles of less government. It was Woodrow Wilson said the history of liberty is the history of limited government. It's Woodrow Wilson in 1919, a Democrat, right? It was John Kennedy who said, that's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That is all upside down now. It's what can the government give me? Mm-hmm. And wine and wine, wine. People are complaining all the time. And so I'm worried about this move towards the socialist sorts of left. Okay. Now mm-hmm. I won't even say socialist. Thank you. Okay? <laughs> that's one of our no no words. Yeah. We say we can't say. <laughs> I, I think that's right. I sometimes say it. Yeah, I know. I, mean, I, know. <laughs> I, I think this movement towards left, towards entitlement, towards lack of accountability, mm-hmm. towards lack of individual responsibility, yeah. which comes about that. Americans love to work. Yeah. Some right? of us. <laughs> and, 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 and the self respect, the dignity you get from working. I think is critical to give away things, free education. I think you devalue it as an example. I really do. I think we have to rethink all of the social programs in an appropriate way. There needs to be a safety net, but we're going too far. We're becoming Europe and we don't need to become Europe. We're different. Do you think that there is something to say, though, that maybe college shouldn't be as expensive? Do you think people should be going into so much debt coming out of college and starting their careers knowing they have 200 grand plus to pay off in student loans? Well, it's interesting. There's an article recently I thought was interesting. If you think about small loans to individuals, usually you have to go through a credit check, Mm -hmm. right? Can this individual repay it? Now, it's not true in student loans. You can no. just show up and say, I'm going to school. Give me a lot of money. Oh, I mean, what 18-year-old has a credit score, right? But nobody does. None of them are yeah. credit yeah. worthy. <laughs> exactly. But my point is, what courses are they taking? Is it basket weaving or is it something that's actually going to give them a job? I agree. Or they, Jim is saying that. Yeah. You know, 
education is an investment. It's mm-hmm. both our country's investment and an investment in a person. But as you're saying, you know, who would you invest in? Somebody who's going to become an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, or somebody who is going to be a basket weaver. Well, I don't know if that's, needs- I don't know if that's an option for anybody, but <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen those courses. I was never asked to basket weave, so I feel like I missed out, but. <laughs> We'd be getting hate emails from all the basket, <laughs> basket weavers. weavers. We are not against basket weavers. <laughs> Sorry, we're not basket weavers bashing, but. No, I think that's an interesting concept though. I mean, and my, my dad, and we've talked about this pretty extensively too. I feel like obviously I don't think anybody should be going broke to get an education in a sense, especially knowing, I mean, what their earning potential is after, you know, college based off of the degree that they went. I have my best friend. I love her to death. She went to school for social work and she knew she was going to be making literally like $24,000 a year, maybe 30 afterwards. And she's drowning in student loan debt now, because I mean, that's obviously you can't, pay that back in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I mean, also, there are families who have saved up and made great sacrifices to afford college education. Oh, for sure, yeah, of course. And so I can see if you're one of those, and yet now you have a progressive agenda that says make it free or forgive all the loans, you're going, why didn't I save and sacrifice? No, and that's my dad talk. We talk about this all the time, too, yeah. When they're paying off the loans, I'm coming there with the lawsuit because I want, you know. No, but that's the thing, though, and we've talked about this, too. Like, just because... Other people had it harder and they had to go through those struggles. Does that mean we don't want it to be easier for the next generation to not have to deal with that? Like, where do we draw the line? Yeah, it's an interesting point. But I have to say, on the other side, too, we have to look at the universities. Oh, they're so corrupt. Yeah. No, you you did a whole thing about universities. This is what you need to change. (laughs) Yeah, I'd probably agree with you. Oh, no, I agree, too. Yeah, it's it's prohibitively expensive. No. So, Harriet. We've had Jim here about an hour and ten. Well, do you want to have Jim do a quick Hey Gavin for us? Or do you well, want to just do it? He kind of did. Well, yeah. we'll pepper that in. Well, we do a, a Hey Gavin every week. My dad is not the biggest fan of Gavin Newsom, so he speaks directly to Gavin Newsom about things that he would change. But Hey Gavin, <laughs> you are just, I am just amazed by the walls that you think, you know, just some of the bills and the walls that you've signed, you know. I'm speechless right now. I know. He can't even, I, I he's mean, never speechless. <laughs> I just can't even think. I mean, it seems like what you want to do is you want to, you say you have a goal of helping, but sometimes you forget how you were helped. Sometimes you forget how to help. And sometimes you don't, you know, sometimes, let's say you have to have an iron fist. That's not the answer. But sometimes in order to help people, you have to, you have to have discipline. You have to to train them you have to hold them to a certain standard but just giving in i mean you know letting people out of jail getting rid of bail you know giving people free pass who can steal up to 950 dollars you know uh per offense i I mean these are just contributing to the problems and and as you can see in california you know homelessness is getting out of control and granted there may be other reasons for the homelessness but your policies are making it worse and you know as Republicans, we don't have the power in this state to to change these programs. But, you know, if you're not going to let us help you, we're going to come up with, as Jim said, very focused programs, which are going to make each of our communities better. We'd like you to be a partner there to help us. But if you're not, we can't sit back anymore. And be cognizant. Hey, Gavin, be cognizant <laughs> of unintended consequences. Yeah. The gig economy bill that was yeah. passed by Lorena oh. Gonzalez and company and signed by you, Governor, has not been helpful yeah. to workers in theater. 
who are now have to be treated like regular yes, employees right. and are losing their oh, jobs yeah. to yeah. hundreds of other contractors who want to live a lifestyle that gives them the freedom and flexibility, but this law prevents it. And then when you begin to carve out exceptions, yeah. the law loses all teeth. Yeah. So yeah. think about the unintended consequences before you pass a bill and yeah. signed it. And good intentions do not always occur okay. uh, in terms of the okay. consequences that, that happen. Oh, I agree. Have thank you. Do you have anything else? No, I mean, I thank this you so much great. for coming on. But We've had a great conversation. Tell us this where people can find you. Yeah. What are your websites? Plug yourself, please. Well, I'm going to plug myself. <laughs> the election's only 35 days away. Oh, the primary. Oh, that it's is a jungle. Amazing. Jungle oh. election. So top two, proceed to the general election. www.debellocongress.com is the website. Please take a look at the website and the video that explains my positions and my history. Great video. Great video. I hope you enjoy it. I'd love to have your vote. I thank you for this opportunity, Harriet, Randy. It's been a lot of fun. Thank, thank you so you. much for coming on. We've loved having you and good luck in the election. Thank All you. The best.